Welcome to the official podcast for the Society of Urodynamics, Female Pelvic Medicine, and Urogenital Reconstruction. Here you will find podcasts highlighting clinically relevant topics, ongoing SUFU initiatives, SUFU member highlights, and much, much more. Hi, um, my name is Lenore Ackerman, and I am at uh, University of California, and I'm going to be introducing our next set of speakers today. So. Our session is going to be focusing on big data in urologic science and benign urologic diseases. And one of the things that has really been profound over the past uh, five to 10 years or so is that as urologic scientists have been able to get access to large data sets of all kinds, genomic data, proteomic, metabolomic, metagenomic, et cetera, we now have the power to leverage this data to make lots of new discoveries about the challenging diseases that we see in benign urology. And so to tell us a little bit more about how we can use this, uh, we have invited a wonderful collection of basic and translational scientists to show us how they synthesize this type of data to push the boundaries of discovery. So we're going to start with a Dr. Catherine Pitanti. She is currently professor at Loyola University in Chicago, where she also serves as director of the bioinformatics program there. She received her PhD in computer science from the University of Houston and then went on to join Loyola's faculty in 2007. Um, her impressive career has blended traditional bench science with molecular and molecular biology with computational biology and applied computer science to complex probe-microbial communities in a variety of environments. And today she will speak to us about her work using metagenomics to characterize the urinary microbiome. Hello, my name is Catherine Putanti and I'm a professor at Loyola University, Chicago. I'd like to thank the organizers for inviting me here today to share my lab's work on metagenomics and the urinary microbiome. As we all know, our own human body is home to thousands, if not more, of different microbes. They're imperative for maintaining our health, and of course, they can contribute to symptoms and disease. When the Human Microbiome Project was started, the urinary tract was excluded. This was because it was believed that within healthy individuals, the urinary tract was in fact sterile. This, however, is now known not to be true. A first step in determining that there was a microbiome in the urinary tract was done in 2010s um, using 16S ribosomal RNA sequencing surveys. So in 2011, Dong et al showed that there was bacterial DNA within male first catch urine samples, as well as urethral swabs. From these 16S surveys, they identified many different bacterial genera found there within. So 16S ribosomal RNA is found in all bacteria and variable regions within this gene sequence can be used to identify the um, origin of this DNA, often at the genus level. In 2012, a study by Wolf et al. showed that bacterial DNA was also found within the female urinary tract. In a subsequent study by that group, Pierce et al. 2014, they profiled the different bacterial taxa found within the healthy female bladder microbiome. So each column here is an individual and their urine was sampled, again, using 16S um, sequencing and identified lactobacillus, for instance, within the vast majority of the um, individual sequence, 
Other bacterial taxa identified it included Gardnerella, Enterobacteriaceae, um, and so on. And so we can see within even the healthy or the um, population of women without lower urinary tract symptoms that there are many different bacteria, um, at least based upon the DNA found there. So there's not one um, kind of community of bacteria that is analogous to health. While these 16S surveys were instrumental in determining that there was in fact bacterial DNA present in the urinary tract and who or what bacteria were found there within, these 16S surveys cannot tell us what the bacteria actually do. So what those bacteria encode for. As I mentioned, these variable regions often can tell us the genus of bacteria, but they can't tell us the species, nor can they tell us, for instance, what metabolic pathways they encode, or for instance, if they include antibiotic resistance genes. 16S surveys, however, are quite powerful in identifying bacteria um, because all bacteria have a 16S ribosomal RNA gene. However, this limits our view just to bacteria. So in the human microbiome, we know that even within healthy individuals, there are other microbes such as fungi and viruses. And in fact, within the urinary tract, we found that both healthy and symptomatic individuals also include um, fungi as well as viruses. So with the 16S surveys, we're only getting a picture of the fraction of the community present. In order to capture that complete community, there's been several different approaches. The first I want to introduce is metaculturomics. So with metaculturomics, we're using bladder relevant conditions to actually culture and isolate um, species within the laboratory. So I think this illustrate, illustration really highlights the fact that under particular conditions, here we've got one microliter of urine spread on this plate and incubated for 24 hours, we see no sign of microbial life. In contrast, when 100 microliters of that same urine sample were spread on this plate and incubated for 48 rather than 24 hours, we can see a diverse collection of microbes are now thriving. Metaculturomics was also instrumental in showing that the DNA that we were detecting with those 16S, or those 16S surveys of the urinary tract were in fact representative of viable microorganisms. So not only were we detecting DNA, um, but we were really detecting DNA from, from organisms that were residing there. Nevertheless, metaculturomics are in fact limited as well because some cellular organisms, we just can't grow in the lab. So we've detected them via 16S. Um, we think that they're actually um, viable and, and living within the urinary tract environment. However, we haven't identified the right conditions to grow them within the laboratory. While metaculturomics can capture the fungal and the bacterial constituents, it is unable to capture viruses which might be present. Thus, in order to capture that whole diversity, we must rely on um, culture agnostic approaches such as metagenomics. So with metagenomics, we're sequencing all of the DNA content, not just the 16S, but all of the genome for all organisms present within a sample. 
And so this will include both those organisms that we are able to culture, as well as those organisms that we aren't able to culture. Most notably, metagenomics allows us to capture the viral portion of an environmental sample. So I'm going to focus the rest of my time here really on the viral constituents of the urinary tract. Within the urinary tract, um, we've found two different types of viruses, and I wanna clarify that in the onset here. We have bacteriophages, which are viruses that infect bacteria, and we also have eukaryotic viruses, or viruses that infect eukaryotic, for instance, human cells. We can separate cellular matter from viral particles and sequence, for instance, just the cellular matter or just the viral particles. When we're sequencing just those viral particles, we refer to that as the virome. Now, we are unable to separate the bacteriophages from eukaryotic viruses. So in viromic studies, we're actually sequencing all viruses. <clears throat> so that includes both phage populations as well as, in our case, human viruses. So why study phages? They're in fact the most abundant biological entity on Earth. Here's an image of um, a phage, and this is often the image we see when we are um, looking at phages. We've got a head within that head otherwise known as a capsid, we have the phages genomic material. Phages are often um, characterized based upon their tail structure, as many phages do have tails. And so this one's got a nice straight long tail. And at the end of these tails are tail fibers. And those tail fibers are um, how a phage identifies a susceptible bacterial host through interactions with the bacterial cell wall. As I mentioned, phages can take many different shapes. We do have phages that don't have tails. We also have, for instance, phages that have what I like to refer to as a noodley tail. Um, and so these are all different types of phages. Phages have gained renewed interest within Western medicine, given their potential use to augment or replace antibiotics. So you may be familiar with the phrase phage therapy. Phage therapy, really takes advantage of one of the mechanisms in which phages replicate. So here I've got a picture of a phage, the phage DNA being in the capsid or the head of the phage. And I'll refer to this as an active phage. So the active phage recognizes a susceptible host through those interactions with the host cell wall and the phage's tail fibers. It will then inject its DNA within the bacterial host cell, where it in essence hijacks the bacterial host machinery to replicate itself and produce mature virions within the bacterial cell. These mature virions will then lyse the bacterial cell and diffuse into the surrounding environment, in essence, continuing this cycle and identifying new susceptible host cells to um, infect, replicate, and um, ultimately burst. Despite their ubiquity, we've actually characterized very few phages in the lab. And by characterize, I mean understand the hosts that they can infect, how they infect those hosts, how they replicate, and so on. And this is true of any environment, not just the urinary tract. Um, and again, thinking more globally about phages on Earth, we actually have just a fraction of um, the phages believed to be on Earth sequenced. So we now have a few thousand uh, phage genomes, and this is many orders of magnitude less than, for instance, the genomes that we have for bacteria 
or for other cellular forms. Now, phages are the most abundant, and an initial question was, how abundant are phages within the urinary tract? Um, in a study in 2015, Santiago Rodriguez et al. did the first virome analysis of the urobiome, or the urinary tract microbiota. They took urine samples from individuals with and without UTIs, and they found that the vast majority of the viral sequences produced did not resemble any known characterized virus. In fact, they were finding lots of sequences that had no homology to any gene sequence ever seen before. For those that they were able to identify, the vast majority of the gene function predictions were associated with phages. This suggested that phages are in fact abundant within the urinary tract and more so they're more prevalent than human viruses in this environment. Shortly thereafter, my group did a study um, and we sequenced catheterized urine from 10 women without lower urinary tract symptoms and 20 women with overactive bladder symptoms. Similar to the study of Santiago Rodriguez et al., we also found that the majority of our um, uh, urine samples contained viral particles. So we found many sequences that are predicted to be viral. For those sequences, characterized phages. So we were able to identify them as a phage as they potentially carried a gene that we'd seen in another phage, um, but the rest of the genic content for um, that putative phage uh, was unknown. From these uh, metagenomes, we were actually able to assemble the complete genomes of five different isolates of JCPYV or JC virus, the polyoma virus. And all five of these came from individuals with overactive bladder symptoms. And when we compared them to all publicly available JCPYV genomes, we found that our um, individuals represented some of the diversity within the JCPYV genome. We've subsequently followed up in further investigating JCPYV in the urinary tract. Many of the publications describing the virome of the urinary tract, and I will mention that there's not many, um, they regularly report that JCPYV is present. One of my students, Rita, shown here, um, got from public data repositories 165 urinary metagenomes. And these could be metagenome uh, sequencing studies that took all the bacteria viral um, constituents and sequenced them, or they were viromic studies, meaning that they just sequenced the viruses. So as I mentioned, many of the, the studies related to this data uh, talked about JCPYV. However, when we re-examined these data sets, we found with high confidence that only three of the samples had JCPYV. And I want to highlight here um, how we made that distinction. So in many cases, we found sequencing reads within our metagenome that were representative of um, individual genes within the JCPYV genome. So that's what's shown down here, the genes in green, or in fact, of particular domains within that JCPYV genome. And so in many cases, some of our, our um, some of these prior studies had called this as the presence of JCPYV. However, we've decided to raise the bar. 
not only must individual domains and in cases some genes be present within our sample, but we want to have an evenness in coverage, meaning that all of the gene coding regions within a given virus are in fact um, covered or represented in the DNA sequences um, produced in a metagenome study. And so in this case here shown in B, we have lots of representation of the individual genes within JCPYB and there's an evenness in that representation. And so with high confidence, we are able to ascertain that this particular um, sample does in fact have JCPYB in its community. Regardless if you're studying viruses or bacteria within the urinary tract, we have a major hurdle, which is that this is a low biomass um, community. In contrast to the gut, which is in essence just overflowing with bacteria and viruses, the urinary tract, while it is home to a microbial community, that microbial community is much less abundant than other areas of the human microbiome. Um, and I mentioned before with 16S surveys, we were able to determine that um, bacterial taxa were present, but we weren't able to really determine what they potentially were doing. Um, in these communities. And we're now really at that same point with the virome. So the virome is uh, uh, present in all almost every single sample that we've looked at. Um, and it's very likely that it's playing a pivotal role. And one role I'd like to just hypothesize about is its um, role in modulating the diversity of organisms within this community. A recent study by Price et al. showed that within a single individual over time, the members of that individual's urinary microbiota fluctuate. So for instance, on one day, they may have a, a dominant community or their community might be dominated by lactobacillus. Whereas on the second day, there's an emergence of Gardnerella, which on day three actually is the dominant species. So we observed this fluctuation. And one of my working hypotheses is that contributing to this observed fluctuation is in fact predation via phage. So as more susceptible hosts become available, the phage is able to um, infect more hosts, replicate and reproduce. Um, and this is a current area of investigation within my group. So I've mentioned that phages are abundant within the urinary tract, but one of the key reasons that people are so interested in them now is their potential use as um, therapies. And so I wanted to discuss just one of the phages my group has isolated and um, its potential use um, as a phage therapy. And so um, one of my students, Genevieve, shown here, isolated a phage from um, a P. originosa or Pseudomonas originosa community from a BPH male patient. And so she was able to isolate this phage spike and we could visually see it in the laboratory by plating it on a, um, a uh, susceptible laboratory strain in our collection. And so what we're showing here is that there's um, bacteria grown here in the green and where you see this clearing, that's where the phage was actually spotted onto the bacteria and the phage has infected the bacteria, reproduced, lysed that bacterial cell, diffused to the neighboring bacteria and propagated throughout the plate. And so um, 
we isolated this particular phage, sequenced its genome. It's a novel phage that we've identified. Um, but with our mind on its ability to be used for phage therapy, we next set out to test its host range or um, assess how infectious it was of other P. originosa um, isolates. And so it was, in fact, you know, um, isolated from the urinary tract. We wanted to see how, um, how virulent it was against other urinary pseudomonas originosa isolates. And so what's shown here in this table, each one of these is an individual isolate of P. originosa we have from the urinary tract. And if spike is capable of infecting it, it's indicated by a check mark. So as you can see, spike is capable of infecting numerous um, P. originosa strains from the urinary tract. However, it's not capable of infecting all. But this is actually quite a, um, a good host range for a phage um, based upon my lab's prior experience. So it has real potential to be used um, as a phage therapy. While P. originosa might not be a common cause of UTIs in um, uh, women, it is um, a noted cause of UTIs in men. So just in summary, viruses are abundant in the urinary tract microbiota, but we are just at the beginning of exploring the genetic diversity there within. And exploring this um, community of phages within the urinary tract is a great wealth of potential candidates for use as phage therapy. And with that, I'd like to thank the members of my lab that directly contributed to this work, our many collaborators, including those listed here today, the patients and clinicians who helped with um, obtaining these samples and facilitating these studies, and lastly, our um, funding sources. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to today's episode on the Sufu Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast streaming app. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and SoundCloud. Follow us on Twitter with our handle at SuFuOrg, where we'll provide real-time updates of our next podcast episode launch. And be sure to check us out on our website, www.sufuorg.com.